Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I don't want little Timmy to read Hitler's Mein Kampf and become a skinhead. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Dungeon Deep Dive. Uh, my name is Lachlan Hoy. With me, I have Tully Grimley. Hello, hello, hello. And Danae Bags. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, I just wouldn't. I've only, I only really know your surname through Facebook, so I was fucking, I was like, oh, God, oh I hope God. it's right. God, I really hope it's right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's really only one way to pronounce bags. And it's pretty- well, I don't know. It could have just not been your surname, though. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I know. I mean, Danae's not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's like, you've. I, I don't know what I'm working with. That's fair. That's fair. I think the for the viewers at home, you wouldn't be particularly well acquainted with the fact that, like, I know I know both of these hosts very well, and they have only met on recording. Um, that's not true. Sorry. We hung out once, once before to talk about the Re- possibility <laughs> of <laughs> this recording. Yeah, we we planned what we would record. <laughs> yeah, so they met at the pitch meeting, and then everything else about their relationship, you know, uh, with the exception of stuff I've cut. But like, yeah, like the sex toys, Tully. Yeah, I know. I really Sunday. know you now, Lachlan. Huh. Yeah. It's we- it is weird that like all of our conversations are recorded because even the stuff that Tully's cut is still somewhere. Mm, we've still got the raw recordings. We could listen to ev- almost every second of conversation we've ever had. That is some horrifying Truman Show shit. Right? Yeah. So weird. I love it. <laughs> all right. So what are we talking about today, Tully? Uh, well, today we are talking about libraries. Mm. Yes. Uh, big big topic for a lot of uh, fantasy. It's very rare that you'll see a fantasy world without libraries. Uh, we just kind of take it for granted that it's a place where there's books. Mm. But there's a lot more to know about them than, uh, than meets the eye. Wait, really? Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Enough it's, it's to real fill surprising. a 60-minute podcast? Maybe. Well... I suppose I'll get started and we'll find out. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow, a, I want to vomit. Yeah, it was the worst transition I've ever come up with. <laughs> um, so, libraries. What even are they? It's a place with book books house. in. Book Yeah. Book pyramid. That's, book temple. That's true. But if you listen to Foucault, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Which who doesn't, am I right? Um, no, basically, uh, Foucault gives uh, a definition in... Uh, he wrote a couple things about libraries, actually. But in some of his writing, he gives a definition of kind of what he thinks libraries are supposed to be. Um, and he based it off of a... Um, I can't think of any facts about Foucault off the top of my head. That's why I haven't given a description of who he is. Foucault. I just remember him being important. 
Um, Foucault talks about, uh, based on an old book about libraries, I, I think, I believe called uh, La Libraria um, was, the, was its name, but it basically talks about this kind of like dreamlike state where this guy is like experiencing kind of like going through these different like stages of knowledge. Mm. Um, and Foucault is talking about that as like kind of an analogy for libraries. He's talking about how it's, he uses the word heterotopia, which is like a... <laughs> My nightmare. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Um, but not only that, it's also, it's, he con- basically he contrasts it with a utopia, which is like seeing the world as like one thing and then like this idealized version as another, as like this like utopian vision. Um, mm. And he contrasts that with a heterotopia, which is like an actual place based on like actual conditions that kind of like can eventually form that if it has like enough different well-regulated things happening is more more or less the gist. Yeah. Um, so he uses this to kind of like explain the like progression of knowledge that led to this kind of what he saw as like very chaotic um, like private book collections in the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's kind of like coloured our perception. I was reading an, uh, an, uh, an academic article about it uh, by uh, Luke Sunderland um, that just kind of like talks about the way we kind of look at books and stuff and these kinds of views of books as and libraries and stuff in the Middle Ages and like kind of the medieval era as these like private collections to be like traded. Yeah. Um, this like kind of chaotic, uh, irreconcilable like mesh of contradictory knowledge and whatever mm. um, is like not really necessarily that, accurate um it's like libraries in the middle ages were i mean a lot more like the libraries of today than i, I think we kind of realize because i mean everybody i feel like knows that um most of the libraries in kind of the like west in the middle ages were controlled by like the church and like religious organizations um yeah, that sure. was a shift i think with uh, uh emperor constantine um constantine the second uh, who Good formed the MPCons. Yeah, who uh, formed the Byzantine Empire? He gave basically the Roman Empire before him used to have like public libraries. In fact, they hated mm. private libraries in Rome. Um, there was uh, a Roman official um, uh, I, whose name escapes me, but a, a highly influential Roman official, kind of at the middle of the like Caesar's Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, was like publicly right, like railing against the idea of having p- private libraries because that was something that had always existed in Greece. But Rome saw how influential the Library of Alexandria was, which was free to access, um, which was very rare at the time. There was like only a couple of libraries that really did that. Yeah. Um, so the Romans were, were big into like having all these public libraries. But then when Constantine came in, he was like, okay, let's give this back to, let's give this to the church. And monks and stuff started writing books. And then, so then we see this kind of like sequestration away from the public of knowledge. This, um, yeah, hiding everything, privatizing it to just the religious elite. Yeah. Well, because it, it, the original. Marat. <laughs> um, I, I did have the thought. Yep, okay, let's give this back to the church is a pretty much a summary of human history, right? Well, actually, <laughs> I, I, I was probably misrepresented it when I said give it back to the church because it was more just give it 
to give the, it to the church. church. Yeah, that's also fair. I mean, the like kind of foundations of what we would consider like modern Western scholarship come from the ancient Greeks. Um, and in the ancient, in an ancient Greece, like the academic kind of like scholarly community were lay people. Um, there was no, there were no figures of authority involved. Like, I mean, uh, bloody, which one is it? Aristotle or Socrates? Who's the oldest one? Socrates. That's the yeah. one. Socrates was the first boy. Um, Socrates was just like some old dude. Socrates didn't even write books. Oh my God, lame. He literally just like walked around without shoes and said, I'm an idiot. Everyone listen. Hey guys, <laughs> I'm an idiot and you are too. And like that's, that was academia. Yeah. That was like the height of academia. Um, um, I mean, just have a look at Plato's shenanigans. It's mm. hilarious. Mm. But um, Constantine was the first emperor to convert to Christianity in the Roman Empire. So, of course, he gives mm. it to the monasteries. And then that kind of like sees this privatization um, of knowledge that doesn't really end um, and kind of like that kind of mimics the old, uh, more kind of like feudal um, libraries that had existed in like England and stuff at the time. Yeah. Um, through a lot of a lot of kind of that like period um and then yeah eventually 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 we worked out that we should maybe let people read books um and then so you see kind of (laughs) what a wild idea (laughs) yeah seriously um so you see kind of in oh pardon me when abouts was it sorry about i think it was about the enlightenment yeah, the golden age of libraries, which was kind of when you start to develop more into um, the like subscription libraries, which was basically just like some institution that wanted to collect knowledge, um, made other people pay to pay to be kind able of to access, access it, yeah. um, and then you saw that kind of like a commercial form of that, which is really just about profit. It wasn't actually about like learning, and then that kind of develops through time to like the public libraries, which came from like the national libraries, which were. Really, just when revolutionary, like liberal revolutionaries, stole back <laughs> libraries from the royals in France, and everyone yeah. was like, "This is a good idea." Yeah, why didn't we do this earlier? Hmm. Um. So the way this kind of like you, this is seen in libraries is through because they had they had like very rudimentary kind of like classification organization systems. I mean, all, all the way back to Library of Alexandria. Mm. Um. But the Romans kind of kick that off um the uh, the byzantines sorry kick that off with separating things into greek and roman like wings of the library mm-hmm. and that's yeah. when you kind of see like modern organizations start to filter in because originally it was like either a room with a bunch of scrolls uh, or codexes or whatever or like a temple with a bunch of books like chained to a wall like it um there wasn't kinky, yeah, <laughs> but it it was just kinky. It wasn't like learned, you know. It wasn't like yeah. public. Um, like no one was learning anything from them. It was just know. like storing info. My kinky is public, so. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but yeah, so you just kind of see like this shift. It's this uh, shift away from uh, seeing things as kind of like valuable um, and like for the state as more towards like being for the community again, which is sort of what they originally were like with the big old like Roman libraries and stuff. So the way that the libraries kind of organize just as 
kind of a general point. Um, kind of around the Middle Ages, organization was a little bit uh, not as well defined. Um, like early organization was again just kind of like splitting things into different languages. Um, then eventually they kind of split things into different disciplines, but only kind of because the idea of having different disciplines wasn't really a thing. I mean, libraries at the time were kind of an extension of... I mean, because even the people that didn't have them have, like, libraries per se, like public libraries. Mm. Uh, like the uh, English during the Middle Ages, for instance, had codexes, which was essentially the monk, uh, like the equivalent of having a giant library, except you wrote it down in one book. Oh, wow. Like, it was literally monks would just take things from other books, so and they would just copy them all down. That's Jeez. the early encyclopedia, I guess. Yeah, that is the encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. So um, Foucault, actually, when he talks about libraries and encyclopedias, uses the two words interchangeably huh. um, because it is just a representation of kind of like our drive to... And this isn't exactly Foucault's point because um, the article I was reading kind of contradicts Foucault and it's like, it's not chaotic. Like, there was a bunch of shit there, but that was because they recognised that it was a bunch of, like, interrelated shit. Mm. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's just like this collection of knowledge. And ev- and everyone's always known that it's supposed to be interrelated. Um, like the reason that we think of it as kind of really separate is we really only look at the trade of books when we look at the medieval era. Mm. Um, because, I mean, writing was originally invented to write down uh, commercial transactions. It's like what writing is... What writing does. So, of course, it's the first thing you write down. Yeah. It all comes back to money. Mm. It always comes back to money. Honestly. Um, but we don't talk about because we don't have a lot of records of it, like where the books came from. And if you look at where the books came from and what other books were there at the time, you see that these libraries weren't just like some random person's personal interests and uh, things of wealth. It was this attempt to create this like beautiful, like holistic understanding of the entire universe that was like building through history based on like the knowledge of ages past and it just kind of didn't feel that way because there weren't a whole lot of books so you couldn't get all the books because other people had some too so you just kind of ended up trading for the best ones yeah um libraries are the original pokemon mm, cards but because but because of this kind of like slow move away from seeing humanity as like natural that kind of came about with this like like the Byzantine kind of separating knowledge from the people, the kind of like all the, the various like economic developments that have happened with like liberalism and stuff. It's We don't think about that kind of stuff. So when somebody says, well, all we know about books is who had them and where they went, we just kind of take them at face value because we don't really think about, well, if that person had them, then why? Yeah. And um, yeah, why'd they collect the knowledge that they did? But yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, my point being, the thing that makes libraries libraries is this understanding by the people who run them that this is the state of knowledge. What is in this room is, as far as we can tell, the state of knowledge in the of everything. This yeah. is all we know. Mm. This is all that I know that we know. And so they treat it as such. Uh, I mean, catalogs existed in libraries to help librarians get around since fucking ancient, ancient, ancient China. Oh, the yeah. first libraries had catalogs with so librarians could get around. And that's the thing. Like, libraries are confusing because, and they seem kind of weird and kind of mysterious and, like, they contain everything because they do and they are confusing. Uh, like, they do have everything. 
catalogs exist. Librarians have to undergo their own study just to be able to navigate a library because a librarian has to know a decent amount of everything that is known mm. to be able to get around a library. If you ever think that a librarian's job is simple or that it's easy to organize all books, mm. just just spend five minutes looking at the Dewey Decimal System and how they categorize all of the knowledge ever. Yeah. Um, Dewey Decimal is like... Invented in 1878? Seriously? Yeah. Uh, it was introduced in... Sorry, 1876. People first published smart. by Melville Dewey in 1876. Um, and the latest edition of it was printed in 2011. Mm. Um, but... And even that is nothing like what we would have, what we would have had back then. That is the most organized we have ever been with books. Yeah, well, because yeah. because I believe Dewey Decimal, off the top of my head, organizes things into a type of subject matter, then has some connection to whatever the specification is, and then like some specification. So it's like if you were talking about, I think the example that I read was birds in France, it would be the number for birds, the number for geography, and then the number for France. And that's... Yeah, so if you're looking for birds in France, it would probably sit under, I'm looking here, um, either pure science or history and geography. I'd say pure science. So it'd be in the 500s. um, And then you'd look for... 500s in biology, 500s in biology for birds, and then find the specific cat- subcategory for birds in France. Yeah, you like specify after the decimal point. It's like Jesus Christ. It's um, a whole thing. But like back, but back in um, but that's the thing. It, it wasn't that complicated back at like back when you do. If you're in like a fantasy setting, and you're talking like yeah. the middle eight, the middle like Middle Ages, medieval period, you're literally talking like likely. Uh, two different rooms with different languages in them. Uh, and most split into broad different disciplines. I mean, the most yeah. complex you'll get is magical libraries. And even then, I know, like, sometimes you can blur the lines, but for D&D setting, you've got eight schools of magic and that's it. Mm. Um, and, like, honestly, people around those eras wouldn't have seen those as different things. The it's magic's magic. Yeah, I mean, well, the like original kind of concept of magic as we know it seems to kind of trace back to the Babylonians, and they thought that that was as much a science as science was. Yeah, um, and that continued all through like Mesopotamia and through ancient Greece and stuff. Like this mm. kind of like spiritualism is like very kind of fundamental to um, our entire like scientific tradition. Um, it's mm. it, like it's really impossible to separate that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I find it really interesting how so many things were once considered scientific and then over the years they sort of just get kicked out of science. Like yeah. It's like Pluto being a planet and then after a while they're just like, actually, well, I mean, not enough proof, you're not, a, you're not science anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Up until how recently was astrology still science? Like all of divination was science. Mm. True. Yeah. More on that in on another that in episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just... It's everything, and the people who run it know everything. Um, they probably only have a few hundred books if you're running something medieval. So you're, you're dealing with a librarian who knows 300 books inside and out, and those books can answer, at least in some way, any question. That's the idea. Yeah. So you're dealing with, like, the thing that makes libraries feel real is just... A terrifying, all-powerful, all-knowing librarian. Yeah, 
really. <laughs> it's a library isn't going to feel real because the whole point of libraries is this. A library isn't going to feel real unless it has a bit of everything and someone who can help you find it. Yeah. Um, and then you can organize that into however you want. I mean, some people put bookshelves against walls and some people have glass floors and bookshelves that face each other with windows between them. Like some people have uh, tiny stone rooms in temples that they copy books in and then chain them to the walls. Like libraries look like whatever the aesthetic of the people who made it is and contain, but they all contain the same thing and are all trying to do the same thing and always have. One thing, if you're looking at the aesthetics of a library, one thing to consider, especially in this age, unless you're relying on magical transcription, they will all have a lot of writing space. Yes. Because printing books wasn't a thing. So you would have to take a book and write it out. And if you were going to add it to the codex, you had to take out the codex with your whatever you used as a pen, whether it be a a quill or a stylus or a, a pen... And you would have to mark it down permanently. Uh, and so it would just be lots of handwriting. Don't fuck up. Yeah. Do not, under any circumstances, fuck up what you write. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the Byzantines even had like a giant table in the middle of the um, the libraries that, in the like rooms with the books in them to be like, hey, this is where you copy things and where you read things and stuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, every, uh, the evidence suggests and, there isn't much evidence, more on that later. In the Library of Alexandria, every sort of stack was an alcove which mm. had shelves and a writing space Yeah, um, with light, natural light available. Oh, that's the other thing. Um, they were so much more like accessible and like well-defined and stuff as well because libraries used to pay people, like uh, scholars and experts and stuff, to stay there and write there and debate there and like... Mm, they like, were... It started with the Library of Alexandria. They would like pay for these people's entire living. Um, so you're dealing with like a, a very highly organized uh, collection of knowledge with like all of the figures who are like preeminent in those fields all right there to talk to. Mm. Um, yeah, it's. I don't know. It's weird. It's it's. It's strange how similar it is to a modern library, I thought. Um, yeah. Even though you can't, like, take things out of it for most of the time. Though, if it's, like, a really big one, sometimes you could. Um, but it was just, like, yeah, they couldn't afford to lose books, so you had to keep them inside the building. But other than that, until yeah, until the church messed things up for everyone. I mean... Uh, As it does. Yeah. If uh, I will say, if you want a good example, I didn't talk too much about the details of it, but just because it's pretty much how libraries are now. Um, but the uh, like the libraries in the Arabic world after the kind of fall of the Byzantine Empire, mm. um, definitely after the fall of the original Roman Empire, um, kind of around sixth century AD. Uh, fantastic examples of medieval public libraries, but they were just public libraries. It was like yeah, you get a membership probably sometimes not necessarily and you typically would have to like give them some collateral like money or something yeah usually i believe i was when i was reading a lot of the a lot of the examples they had the the deposit you put down was half the value of the book but then when you brought it back you got the deposit back yeah well that was because that came from a charter that was one of the like figure one of the like political leaders of the um 
in that like region of the world uh, around the sixth century, I think, released like a me- basically released a memo that was like, "Here's how we run libraries now," um, which had like those specifications. Because oh, up nice. until then, most places didn't let you borrow, and the places that did let you take whatever the fuck you want. There was one library <laughs> in um, in the Arabic world around that time. One of the one of the libraries that was like n- not too far away from the library that they first did the like, give us half the money or mm. another book thing that would let you take for long periods up to 200 books. Seriously? You could just take whatever the fuck you wanted. That's enough to start your own library. It's insane. And this is a time where like they're only like kind of dealing with codexes as well. So a lot of stuff would still be on scrolls and it was just a whole it's like scrolls or these like giant hand beautifully done codexes and they just do that they would just let you take whatever it was wacky anyway yeah libraries just wacky do whatever yeah just do whatever as as long as as long as you can answer everyone's questions a little bit then you've got a library down nice yeah well i'm going from that i guess talking about the the kinds of knowledge that libraries are going to have um i just thought what i would do everybody has sort of somewhat heard about the Library of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to use that as a case study. I'm going to use that as a case study on the how libraries can gain and lose knowledge. Um, because really it is such a perfect example of the rise and fall of a library. Um, now, I'm going to preface this. Everything I say here, everything we know about the Library of Alexandria is based on spurious sources at best. Um, at best, there's a couple of secondhand accounts and maybe one primary source. At worst, there's no primary sources. This is... The story of the Library of Alexandria is so... is basically lost to the ages. Yeah, well, because... Um, and um, you'll probably trust, touch on it a little bit, but like I said, like they used all the papyrus... Nobody could write anything down, and parchment parchment was invented because the Library of Alexandria used so yep. much of the world's supply of papyrus. I will get to that. Like books were so ex- like only su- like six super rich people could write a book at any given time. <laughs> yeah. Um. So essentially, everything from here has to be taken with a grain of salt. But because I'm using it as a case study, it's going to be talking about more so about the narrative that has been woven, um, and what we kind of know, and how you can integrate that into sort of the history of your worlds and your libraries specifically. So just some interesting facts about Alexandria. Um, at the time when it was founded, the language was Greek because Alexander the Great had just conquered Egypt and he was like, yep, cool, we're Greek now. Um, the Greek sciences, which we call now proto-science, um, was what they collected. And so that's a collection of science, as we were talking about it before, including extra subjects. So philosophy, poetry, and maths, uh, yeah, philosophy, poetry, maths, they were kind of the main domains of science and they were governed by the muses who were sort of these, they weren't Greek gods, but they were godlike figures. They were spiritual figures. Yeah. Um, more on that later. But as the history goes, um, the library was founded after Alexander's death. Now, either Alexander or Ptolemy I wanted to collect just all the books on Earth. That was their goal. Collect every book that was ever written. Like that was their legit goal was to act. Yes, like that was their legitimate goal. And they were like, I want every book ever. Well, I mean, 
uh, Mesopotamia was only what it was because uh, Alexander the Great said, I want all the land ever. So <laughs> it's yeah. not like it was out of character. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so basically, but somewhere between 285 and 246 BCE, um, the Library of Alexandria was founded under the rule of Ptolemy II. So there's, we have a, a span of about 40 years where it could possibly have been started. Reason for that is it was sort of started on top of or around or separate from the, the Museum of Alexandria and also there may have been a temple that a lot of its archives were kept in. We're not exactly sure. Yeah, no one really knows what that, what that, what that silly guy even looked like, huh? We're yeah. just kind of making it up. Um, but basically it was free. To access this library was free for anyone who could prove themselves a worthy scholar. So anyone who could show that they could read and write, they could speak relatively well, they could just go in, have books, write books. Mm. Nice and simple. Oh, I will uh, just clarify for anyone who's kind of, because it took me a minute to work it out. Uh, we're dealing with like the knowledge that would be in this library at kind of its foundation would be kind of everything up till end of Aristotle, because it's obviously yeah. Alexander the Great. Um, just as a point of reference, so yeah. just put a pin in that. So these, these guys basically just built up um, this was mostly collecting Greek science or proto-science as we call it now. Um, so it was a lot of mathematics, philosophy and poetry. Well, yeah, because Alexander the Great was a student of Aristotle. Exactly. Um, so what happened at its foundation or very close after, Ptolemy II just hired a bunch of scholars, over 100 resident scholars, um, paid them wages. They, that's where they lived. They wrote, they debated in the library. So it was almost like a university research position. That's essentially what they were doing. I mean, it, it was literally a. I guess well, I guess it was a library research yeah. position. So, but um, here, so th- this is hallmark number one: how to gain knowledge. Number one: employ researchers. So that's one of the best ways to gain new knowledge is by having researchers working permanently at the library, writing new things for it. Um, so it's said that Ptolemy decreed. Oh, yeah, so here we're going to move on to the next bit. Um, It is said, and this is spurious again, it is based on one primary source who wrote mostly in allegory, so we're not sure. Oh, good. Oh, Um, good. But it's said that Ptolemy decreed all books that were brought into the harbour of Alexandria, because Alexandria was a shipping hub, um, were to be taken, copied, and returned to the owners. Now, think of the time that it would take to write out a book by hand. That means that every ship that comes into the harbour of a shipping hub then has to either stay for long enough for all of their books to be transcribed or has to forfeit all of their books. So it's actually unlikely that this happened because of just that nobody would go through Alexandria anymore if that was the case or they just wouldn't bring books. But it is said that this happened. Now, potentially it's because all the books that were imported were copied, something like that. But who knows? Well, um, there is, from what I was looking at, because I was looking at, I looked a little bit like the concept of national libraries. Mm. Um, and they have this thing called, um, it's like a right to reproduce or like a legal right to copy or something. Um, I think we all have a right to reproduce. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Thanks, Danae. Um Shut up, Danae. That's <laughs> cool. Where they, uh, like the, I think it was the, the first one was in England, but they have a right to, basically legally, anyone that publishes a book in that country has to 
has to give give a copy to copy that to library. library. So go. like it is an idea that was like it's a very old. I, I think that that library was established in first conceptualized in the 1500s, built in the 1700s. So like there are ideas that stretch pretty far back. So yeah. it wouldn't have been unheard of if they maybe had like I don't know a right to demand that you give books over, but that they just kind of used whenever they wanted to. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but essentially, it's that's part of another way to gain knowledge is copy it. You have copies created of whatever knowledge is floating around. Wherever you find it, just get a a scholar to copy it over and you've got a fresh new version version of it. Um, So, next up, and here's something that we mentioned slightly earlier, is um, Alexandria basically just bought out all papyrus stocks, stopped exporting it at all, and it was mostly grown in Egypt. In fact, almost entirely grown in Egypt. So... They basically owned all the papyrus in the world. Imagine if nobody had any paper anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, they gained, uh, they gained a, a monopoly of all writing materials, which meant two things. Firstly, nobody could pr- produce books elsewhere, and uh, it meant all the academics would swarm to them. If they wanted to write a book, they'd come to Alexandria to write a book mm. because that's where the writing implements were. So... How to, how to gain knowledge number three, attract academics. Even if they aren't working for you, if they're hanging around where you are, they're creating knowledge where you are. Um, so they were the primary source for, for papyrus and um, they had developed this library of all Greek science for people to come to and visit. So people would just come visit and learn what they could. Um, and here is, and the last bit is go and find it. They had so many ships sent out all over the Mediterranean to go find books, buy them, and bring them back. Um, what a sick job. I know, can right? I just say? And they gave them, like, a shit ton of money too, didn't they? Oh, they invested so much in books. Again, the records of how much, lost to history. But um, there was thought to be, at one point, up to 40,000 scrolls sitting in a shipping container waiting to be sorted in the harbour. Amazing. Um well, 40,000, by the way, is one of the, if that, like, if that story is true, that's one of the estimates, one of the lower estimates for what was even in the Library of Alexandria to begin with. So, yeah. like, if, if those stories aren't apocryphal, then that's, like, that's more writing than you could imagine. Yeah. That's, like, stupid. Um, but this takes me to the fall. This is where things start to go south. Um, and this is how the Library of Alexandria, everyone thinks that it burned. There's this whole folk thing. We mentioned it in an earlier episode that we were devastated that the Library of Alexandria burnt down. Turns out there is evidence to not only suggest but to almost prove that that didn't happen or at least it didn't burn completely. Um, just because the, the, the time when it burned, 48 BC, with, um, when Julius Caesar had just taken over, there are records of people visiting the library hundreds of years later. So um, yeah, unless their timeline of when people were alive has been drastically off, then uh, <laughs> yeah. So in Lies. For- yeah. So in 48 BC, Julius Caesar took control of Alexandria, um, but the Egyptians were like, no, we're not having this. So they came to try and take it back. So Julius Caesar um, set fire to all the Egyptian ships in the harbour which did successfully ward off the, uh, the Egyptian fleet. What it also did was accidentally burn half the city. 
Um, and with that came a lot of books. It's thought maybe a wing of the library burned down, definitely um, scrolls that were being imported, potentially a separate archive. Again, knowledge has been kind of lost there, but definitely not all of the library burned down. But um, yeah, How to Lose Knowledge, part one. Warfare on home turf. If there is a war, you may lose some books. Um, so yeah, it's where it all, it all burned down comes from. Uh, most of the people who wrote that were detractors of Julius Caesar, people who deliberately wanted to discredit him. Um, so we know that's not the entire thing. Um, now, a couple hundred years later, there was a, a tsunami caused by an earthquake in Crete, which supposedly wiped out about half the city. Now, there's no direct sources that state that this caused issues for the library, but um, imagine if you've got sh- uh, just loads and loads of papyrus in a building and a tsunami comes through, you're going to wreck a couple books. Mm, yeah, it's probably not great. Thi- Wait, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, books probably don't do well in tsunamis. No, no. Oh, tsunami beats general, book really? probably. Yeah, yeah. It goes, uh, it goes, yeah, scissors, paper, rock, scissors, tsunami, paper, rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, natural disasters can definitely break things. Um, and here comes into some of the political stuff because... Holding controversial knowledge, um, when the Byzantine, Byzantine rule came around in 391, Theodosius I ordered the destruction of all pagan temples and most pagan knowledge. Um, and what happened with that was basically because the Library of Alexandria was devoted to the Greek sciences, which were devoted to the eight Greek muses who were seen as pagan figures, a lot of Greek science, which the library was based on, was destroyed. Yeah. They just... Awesome. Yeah. I love when knowledge is destroyed. Well, it's not like we needed it. Yeah, it's heresy anyway. Yeah, I only want what this book says I should know, not what this other book says I should know. Wow, yeah. again, all religion ever. <laughs> um, and there are some rumours that this happened twice. Uh, it's rumoured that... When the the Muslim Caliph Omar was in power in 640 uh, AD, uh, he declared it was to be dis- that the whole library should be destroyed because either it went against the Quran and was therefore heresy, or it agreed with the Quran and then was irrelevant. We've already got the Quran, um, so they burned it down. That being said, the only sources that say that were written at least 300 years after the fact by authors who were trying to discredit all Muslim populations. So. I'm going to take that with a big old grain of salt. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to trust that one. No, um, but we're definitely going to say that the that it happened in Theodosius with the, the pagan temples. This is during the Byzantine rule. Um, yeah, so essentially holding forbidden knowledge, that can get destroyed by politically motivated figures. And um, this is... Oh, yeah, then uh, how to lose knowledge number four, drive away or kill your academics. Don't do it. Just kill them. Um, so this is the story of uh, Hippatia, who was one of the great academics, thought to be one of the greatest academics of, of Greek, Greek history. Um, who, she was a lecturer, a writer, a philosopher, um, daughter of Theon, who was one of the great librarians. She is said to be the last librarian of Alexandria, of the Great Library. Oh. Um, and essentially there was Christian rule at this time by a moderate Christian leader. The head of the church in... 
Alexandria, however, was a very, very controversial figure. Um, was very angry at a lot of things. Now, there were Christians beating up, just mobs beating everybody in the streets. This isn't unheard of for Alexandria. It was a pretty turbulent city at the end because it had just had revolution after revolution after revolution. And but, before that, it had empire after empire after empire. Exactly. What a messy history. Exactly. And so what essentially happened was there was just too many different overlapping cultures uh, and yeah, Christians were beating up anyone else in the streets. So the Christian ruler goes, no, we're not going to do that after chatting with Hepatia, asking her what to do. And so the head of the church goes, Hepatia, she's a witch. She bewitched our ruler. And, oh, my um, God. Yeah, ba- pulled her out of a cart and killed her in the streets. And so every academic that learned under her left the city. And that's thought to be the end of academics at the library. But Yay. So, yeah, don't kill your academics. But here's... <laughs> don't kill the one person who can get around your fucking library, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the I last mean, thing. Since when were these people ever sensible when it came to, like, these very pressing and practical concerns? Mm. That's true. That's fair. Um, but the last disaster of the Library of Alexandria is, unlike what we know of it, it actually didn't go down in one tragic event. What we know... Um, So we mentioned that Alexandria had a monopoly on papyrus. As a result, the rest of the world started developing parchment, which was made of animal skins, which was a lot more durable. Um, And papyrus, when it was exposed to any humidity, like, you know, the humidity you find in the Mediterranean or maybe after a tsunami, was very prone to mould and rot. And it is thought that after its last caretakers had left the city that the remaining texts just rotted. They just faded away and were no longer readable. And that is thought to be why the Library of Alexandria doesn't exist anymore. Is because all its texts just fell apart. Yeah. Shift in public interest, lack of funding. Yeah, so lack of upkeep can destroy a library. Yeah. Not to mention just pure time. I mean... Even if they tried, like, there's only so much you can do when you don't have the resources we have, Mm. like, the methods we have today of preserving things. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to save a book, you had to rewrite it. Yeah, and because that's the thing. Like, it wasn't a problem for so long because, like, the legacy originally of the Library of Alexandria was, like, this vast uh, supply of all knowledge with infinite resources. So, like, something starts to get damaged, something needs more specific conditions for its care, something whatever, then it would be paid for. And then eventually you get to a point where it's got, like, this shitty history and who's going to bother? Exactly. And so what we end up from this case study of one library is how they amass the knowledge, and this is something to apply to your libraries, how they amass the knowledge was with trade with conquest, by creating an academic culture, and by employing researchers. Those are the ways that they got it. So think about how those things could have happened and what your libraries have done to collect knowledge. And then any knowledge, any library has threats to its knowledge, um, whether they be conquest, uh, disasters, political affiliations, or just poor record-keeping. Or censorship. Ooh, do tell us more. What a fucking segue. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> well, basically, 
I mean, remember how Lachlan was saying, like, libraries should have everything. Like, they should essentially, like, perform the sum of, of human knowledge mm. as far as is reasonable, right? Mm. Um, but my question to you is, does you all remember that scene in Harry Potter when he used his invisibility cloak to go look up fucking the Philosopher's Stone because... He wasn't allowed in the forbidden section. <gasps> the forbidden <gasps> section. <laughs> How often I'm, is it and why? I'm like 100% certain that JK, uh, JK Rowling, when she was um, in school, was just not allowed into the reference section one time and that's what spawned that forbidden section. Yeah, right? Oh, definitely. She's just like, fuck libraries, yo. They're out to get you. They don't <laughs> want to help you. They've got a whole room of books. They're not even going to let you read. But, I mean, it's kind of true. Censorship throughout history has been a massive deal and libraries, unfortunately, aren't exempt. So I think, yeah, Lachlan had it right. Like, libraries, what they claim to be is basically, like, the commons of knowledge. Like, we distinguish ourselves from other animals because we know things and we know that we know things. That's That's essentially it, like... And books are then really chosen for libraries for how well they fill the gaps in our, I guess, map of our human condition, Mm. right? So, obviously, you don't want uh, censorship to take away anything that could uh, complete this picture that we have of our species and where we've come from and what we've done and what we've thought and and what we're doing now. No, of course not. We want to know that stuff. Exactly. And if you look at library associations now, you know, you can see they're all very sort of anti-censorship. Like the American Library Association has this big statement saying that libraries should challenge censorship in, you know, the fulfillment of their responsibility to provide information and enlightenment. And then closer to home, you've got, uh, for example, the Western Australian State Library saying, Uh, The library doesn't seek to promote or discourage particular viewpoints and doesn't censor material. Although, and this is, I think, a really important point, the library abides by federal and state government decisions on banned and restricted materials. Mm. Oh. Oh. But I thought they didn't... Sorry, I thought they didn't censor information or promote a viewpoint. And yet, sometimes... They do. Now, now, nowadays, you've got to think of it more as, yes, it's essentially goodwilled and you do have access to very different viewpoints. And the books that are challenged are usually challenged with good intentions, which is usually to protect people from difficult or harmful ideas and information we're talking usually children right like it's usually Mm. parents being like i don't want little timmy to read hitler's mein kampf and become a skinhead like (laughs) which is a reasonable concern which is a reasonable concern so like i guess librarians parents the gatekeepers of the written word are essentially like hey maybe there's some stuff out there that like doesn't really contribute anything meaningful or or good to this map of our human condition maybe in fact it detracts and we shouldn't like you know make it prolific but then other times it's completely misguided attempts to protect people like you know books can be challenged because they are lgbt plus inclusive or they say it practices witchcraft like harry potter is is banned in a lot of american schools and stuff because they say it's a cult 
or sometimes it's just uh, because it has offensive language or inappropriate sexual content. Oh, I just remembered reading a, a headline a while back, which was that there was a specific li- school library in the US that banned Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> Truly beautiful. Yeah, it's just... A true irony. <laughs> true irony is so hard to come across. And Holy yet they shit. It. That's great. And, yeah, well, that, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Like, it never really makes sense to suppress ideas because as soon as you make something taboo, guess who wants to know about it? Everyone. Yeah. And guess who hates you? Everyone. Yeah. It doesn't work well for you. I mean, the Nazis burned a lot of books and we still look at that as, you know, second to fucking gassing people. Like, one of the most horrendous acts that they did. Yeah. Because it was it was horrifying. And uh, I find this interesting, though. In America, book burning is part of your amendment rights. as It's part of your freedom of expression. But flag burning you, is not. Yeah, and it's so dumb. So you can burn a book, but you can't burn a flag. Oh, America. Yes. For um, all our American listeners out there, we're sorry. <laughs> Not for what we've said, for America. Yeah. For your standard of living. Yeah. Well, I mean... Not your standard, your conditions of living. But really, shouldn't we be sorry for everyone's conditions of living then? Yes. Which, like, I am, but I'm just saying. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am sorry that I'm alive, yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I meant. Throughout history, though, uh, books and knowledge were often suppressed for much more insidious reasons than to protect people from harmful ideas. Or maybe it still was to protect from harmful ideas, but what exactly harmful ideas consisted of got a bit skew-if, you know? So usually in the past, it was to suppress anything that conflicted with the ruling religious beliefs or the ruling authorities' beliefs. And that's why you have things like the Library of Alexandria, which, you know, just gets gutted multiple times. Yeah. It's, yeah. We don't want any pagan literature anymore. Let's burn it. We don't want any Christian literature anymore. Let's burn it. it exactly. It never does well to take a whole bunch of knowledge and remove it. Even, even if, God forbid, that knowledge is wrong, you just need to curate it as such. Precisely. So I guess here are the questions I'd like the listeners to take away when they're thinking about libraries and books and the possession and gatekeeping of knowledge. How is your world's attitude towards censorship versus freedom of speech and knowledge? Which side does it fall on? Are libraries treated as free knowledge centres or as the property of a government or a ruler? What are the taboo topics or subjects of your realm and time? Is it sex? Is it necromancy? Mm. Is it mermaids? Like We need to do an episode on sex and people's views on sex. Oh, yes. Because tell you what, it is wild seeing what we've picked up in the past like 200 years that wasn't a thing in previous years. It just... Um, but I, I think the thing that's even weirder though is that it kind of doesn't seem like a lot of it was stuff that we didn't have before a couple of hundred years ago. Like, it seems like a lot of this stuff, um, like with uh, like stuff, for instance, talking about, like, having records of different cultures' beliefs and stuff, was, I mean, really a thing everywhere until the church got all the libraries oh. ag- 
and they got to say what they said. That's what I mean. Like the idea of what is described as innocent and what is inappropriate has just, there's so much more things that are seen as inappropriate now and in the past 300 years than ever before. Mm. Um, And I'm not talking about, oh, you know, social justice, whatever. No, that's, we're not talking about the denial of rights. We're talking about the way we define innocence in children is by, we have to protect them from certain knowledge, knowledge like, you know, sex. But do we and why? Yeah, surely someone who is innocent is someone who can handle their knowledge responsibly and not do bad things that would make them guilty of bad things and and thus make them innocent of bad things. Yeah, and arguably what's happened is we've created uh, generations and generations of people who do not know how to handle the emotional matters of adult life because they were sheltered from it as children. And that goes back as far as the bloody 1700s. And this is why I think censorship is bullshit. Mm. I think I think even um, the, the practice of some school libraries in which they put, say, a gold star sticker on, on certain books and they're like, you can't read this book until you're in senior years. I think that's bullshit. I think we need to stop treating children like they're toddlers. I mm. think we need to give children access to most knowledge mm. and be able to talk with them about it. And if and if it does contain some themes that are hardcore or maybe that you think inappropriate, how about instead of just banning it, you let them read it and then you, I don't know, guide them through a discussion in which you... Like, it's stupid. Like, you, you, it's your duty to help shape their beliefs. It's not your duty to completely dictate them or prevent them from making their own. Exactly. And, yeah. And that brings me to, I guess, my final question for the listeners. And that's, well, how, how heavily guarded are your secret knowledge? How heavily do you guard that? Um, do you go book burning? In your world, yeah. are they locked up, kept in a different location, or, or is, is it just a gold star on them? Yeah, or is it just a case of like certain parents and little gatekeepers just saying, "Not for my Timmy." Yeah, uh, and if I would, I would say that kind of the way you answer that question, um, if I may be so bold, is to just kind of look at like. Is it monotheistic or polytheistic? Because monotheistic traditions, monotheistic like societies and stuff were pushing back towards having like really structuralized hierarchy in everything. Everything came from one God. And whereas polytheistic kind of pagan beliefs, uh, I used big air quotes um, there, um, used to be more kind of democratic not in the not in their governance necessarily but mm. maybe even more so in their governance even though they did have tyrants but that's a whole other conversation yep. yeah. um but just in the way that like things kind of came from everywhere and came from everyone so it was so if that's like the society that you live in then their knowledge is going to be shared with everyone because they're everyone's gods as opposed to the church's god yeah Beautiful. Well, does anybody have anything more that they want to add before we take a quick break? No. Oh, I mean, I guess I would point out the outlier of um, Islamic libraries being quite public. Um, yes. I, I mean, mono- I guess I mean monotheistic in the more Christian sense, in the more like strict 
kind of cutting people out. Anything yeah. that contradicts us, you shouldn't know, as opposed to you should know why it's wrong kind of attitude. Yeah. Um, which I guess is just like, because the devil's a real person and he can make you evil anywhere. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But yeah, sorry, that's all I'd add. <laughs> Didn't want to lump in Islam there too. That's fair. And uh, with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back to you with some, uh, some world-building applications for your libraries. Ooh, that's exciting. Ooh, ooh what's this? <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, we're back and we came up with a, a, a thing. Um, so the kind of like questline story hook, I guess more more of a setting than anything else I, I would say is its most mm. useful kind of thing is, um, so imagine there's like this vast civilization where everyone lives in libraries, like the Library of Alexandria, how they used to like host up uh, scholars and stuff, except it's everybody. And so this whole civilization is just these like scholars and librarians and all of the things that you need to sustain those scholars and librarians. So obviously mm. there's like food and stuff being made. But um, so this group is like, has all of these like vast libraries. They're all split into like the different gods they have, um, mm. like Greek style kind of thing um, with I like different domains of different gods going I through like the D&D pantheon. I do really love the idea of... Like, just visiting the Trickery Pantheon um, library. Yeah. I, I really want to see the Trickery Domain library because how cool would that be? Just honestly, how to fool people. Books and books and books of it. Yeah. I, I mean, it would have a lot of writing on... You could have a lot of writing there on, like, I don't know. There would be graffiti everywhere. And, like, deception, kind of like that kind of stuff. Sleight of hands. Yeah, but then you'd also have, like, tricks and little things. And point being, this is a society that sees everything as being given to them by, given to all of them by the various gods who are there to kind of illustrate that things should be held, like, communally. Mm. Um, And so this group is like, look, we don't have a whole lot of books because it is still medieval and you kind of want to keep that, like, material aesthetic um yeah so they could have like in these things like these giant like codexes kind of like uh catholic style codexes that correspond to vast stores of originals that are in like archives that no one can access but Mm. anyone can read a codex and i'd imagine the the knowledge domain people would be the ones that manage the i mean the the codex i would manage the archives of the originals Mm. and probably um, the library of catalogs. Yeah, I mean, they would be. I imagine knowledge domain in this context would literally just be library science. Yeah, so it would be they'd be managing the catalogs of everything. It'd be yeah, it'd be catalogs. It'd be what gets re- what gets reproduced, what can be lent out, all of how things are stored, mm. what is even in there. <laughs> Storage um, domain, like not even just cataloging, but just having someone that can remember the sorts of things that these libraries talk about. Um, so you've got this like really well-structured kind of like civilization of scholars that are trying to fulfill the quest of the Library of Alexandria and get a repository of all knowledge in the world. Now, there is, however, a nearby civilization that's maybe not as, not as free-flowing with knowledge. Maybe they think that their monotheistic god justifies 
knowledge being a hierarchy just as much as government being a hierarchy. I mean, if exactly. everything came from one god and was given to the church, then the church should control it all. The light domain means only knowledge should be light. Yeah, and so maybe this maybe this group has some ancient text on on some ancient civilizations that used to live in the region. Maybe even the library civilization, or maybe it's something as simple as like some magical sc- skills or like some scientific methodologies or something that mm. just didn't really quite mesh with these people's kind of whole Vibe. myth. And so they thought, unlike the others, well. The only way to stop people from being corrupted by this knowledge is to destroy it. And so your party has to set out on this vast or maybe small quest, if you don't want to do it for long, I guess, um, to collect the thing, to collect these books before they're destroyed, to preserve them um, in this like vast library. Yeah. Perfect. But um, yeah, do with do with that whatever you want. We'd love to hear from you if you have used um, our city of libraries. Yeah, or anything that we've talked about so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we love hearing from you guys. Uh, it's always great to have a couple of you uh, contact us and just talk about what you liked, what you didn't. Um, we appreciate hearing back about the new format because it's been lots of fun for us. Yeah. And uh, if you want to contact us, you can catch us on uh, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at, at Dungeon Deep Dive. Or, um, or you can email us at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. That's the one. I'm checking it every day. Um, or type a random number into your phone. Six digits. Look at it. Think about it. Realize that the number is wrong and call anyway. I will answer. Bye. spent millennia upon millennia seeking answers to their questions through bizarre and occult methods that left them in the dark as ever. Now in this golden age of knowledge, people no longer have to look at frankly incomprehensible omens, but rather make rational decisions based on peer review research and the scientific method. That being said, large swathes of people aren't doing that anymore. And here at Imogen Harrison Predict the Future, we've decided to lean in. People just like you email in questions like, should I break up with my loving partner? Should I make a major career change? I feel like I can constantly hear a heartbeat underneath my floorboards. What's up with that? And comedian Imogen. And writer Harrison. We'll look at some tea leaves or the moon or whatever and we'll tell you what to do. And you'll do it. Without question. Imogen and Harrison predict the future. We have a vision. You'll love it. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.